0: Hello, my name is Colin Donnell, and you're listening to episode nine of The Run Loop, a weekly discussion about designing and developing iOS and Mac apps. Today's guest is Laura Savino. Laura, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, it's I just saw you at WWDC, so it's really good to get you on so soon.
1: Yeah, and I think that was in a in a crowd of folks. So I'm glad we'll get to actually talk one on one.
0: Yeah, I think I saw you at the. I think maybe the only time that I got to see you there was at the Breakpoint show when you were you were singing with them, right?
1: Oh yes, when I was literally being a rock star. That yeah, <laughs> that's cool.
0: No, you. I mean, you are literally a rock star. That makes sense. Um, so anyway, maybe uh, I, I know who you are, but maybe some other people don't. So maybe say how people might know you.
1: Uh, Sure. So uh, I am an iOS developer and have, uh, I think the way that most folks have come in contact with my work has been through my conference speaking. Uh, That's something I started doing maybe two, three years ago and have been really fortunate that I've gotten a a chance to participate in a bunch of really lovely conferences in a lot of different places around the world. Uh
0: Uh-huh. And how, how did you get into conference speaking
1: so uh, i in a past life I was actually a foreign language teacher and also did some that uh, did some uh, like theater in high school and a lot of, of stage performances and that kind of thing and so I've always been really comfortable on stage but then when i got to be a programmer, I completely forgot about that entire part of my identity and just was heads down in the code for a, a good couple years. And then actually, uh, Dave Klein of CocoConf Conf asked me specifically if I would be willing to present at a, at one of their events. And I said like, Oh, I, you know, I don't have anything to say. I, you know, I don't know if they would even accept me. And he was like, "No, please send us something." And he really went out of his way to insist that I that I uh, submit a an idea for a talk. So I did my first talk that I gave um, that was about how to not get mad at people when they write bad code, <laughs> um, which was a, a super fun and also cathartic sort of talk to give, and it went over super well and and I've I've discovered like oh wait all of these skills and comfort level with stage and things like that that I built up from from choir from piano from teaching super translated well into conference speaking so that was a nice kind of blending of an identity from my past with with what I was currently doing
0: that's awesome. Um, so I I also uh like to speak at conferences. I haven't done as much recently, but I um I also kind of had not exactly the same background, but I was uh I was a singer in a band for several years. Oh wow. And then that so that kind of let, I had the same sort of like, oh, I'm comfortable being in front of people. Like that's not a problem. Yeah, that's not the scary uh, part. <laughs> yeah. And so uh that I kinda had a similar, you know, lead into to conference speaking as well. So uh, you said your first talk was on how to not get mad at people for writing bad code. What mm-hmm. else? What else have you been speaking about?
1: Oh gosh, uh, one one talk that I really enjoy giving is uh, kind of tips and tricks with Xcode that I almost subtitled stupid little buttons that don't even look like buttons. Uh (laughs) There are so many uh, key parts of people's workflows that really you only learn by sitting down with someone more experienced and watching what they do. And that's a super fun talk because I go through, I spend maybe the first two thirds of it going through things that I've discovered that are absolutely critical to being productive kind of day to day. But then we spend the last third of it with uh, all the participants opening up and sharing their favorite ideas. Because you know, like as soon as devs get together and start talking about workflows, uh, if if one person has been carrying the conversation the whole time, everybody else is going to want to jump in. <laughs> and, like they're basically sitting on their hands at that point saying like, oh, oh, but I have a thing too. I have a thing too. Mm-hmm. I just learned about an awesome new uh, diff view in Xcode that I didn't even know about from someone who... Like raised their hand and was like, "'Oh, I probably shouldn't even bring this up because probably everybody already knows this, but here's a way that you can view uh, a a side by side diff of a particular commit from a line in xcode and oh like, yeah, nobody had seen that. It's some gray text that doesn't look like a button <laughs> so it's it's really it's it's really fun'cause and selfish in a way' because basically I get to learn <laughs> That's awesome from people too,
0: yeah, and um so you've been doing all these talks and uh stuff for the last couple of years, but before that uh well well let 's back up actually to the beginning how did you How did you get started with development?
1: So it was a super roundabout path when i was uh, at university i studied I was super into human languages and writing and teaching and so you know I majored in French and minored in Japanese and wrote my thesis in applied linguistics and uh, that that was was really my first love was how do you get how how can you help adults learn a a brand new human language um, and so you know in my mid twenties I was working in a school for international students, and I was in the school office and was in charge of. Of housing for all these students coming in, and I basically brought the office kicking and screaming into I don't even know the 1990s because <laughs> this uh-huh. I mean this was later than that, but their system of record keeping was uh, printing out reports and then using a complicated system of highlighting that they would copy over week to week as they printed out new reports. It was like okay, this has to stop. I am going to start using Excel <laughs> and uh, started using that to track things, and then I fell. Into getting fancier and fancier formulas, and then discovered VBA macros. Mm-hmm. And that was basically the beginning of the end because it was like, wait, this is the most fun part of my job. It was literally the first time that I stayed late at work because I was so excited about what I was doing that I didn't want to go home.
0: That's awesome. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> I've talked to multiple people who have gotten their start in, like, as professional developers because of Excel. Uh And luckily, um, I'm married to a programmer who had been trying to teach me for years, literally, like it was a decade by that point that he'd been saying, Laura, you would really love programming. And I always pushed back and said, no, no, I'm too creative for that. I'm not going to like it, (laughs) which is a ridiculous thing to think about now because programming is super creative. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. At the time when I finally said, okay, I think I'm ready to start learning this programming thing. He was like, yes, finally. Uh, so, uh, actually his, his first attempt was that he pulled out the, the K and R C book and, and handed it to me on, uh, and said like, here, read this on the bus. This will help you learn programming. And luckily I have a background in teaching. So I was able to say like, okay, this is not actually how people acquire new skills. I know you're excited to teach me programming, but first I need to teach you how to teach and then, then you can teach me programming. So.
0: You felt that throwing K&R at somebody to read on the bus maybe wasn't the the best way?
1: That wouldn't be my first choice.
0: (laughs) No, absolutely. That, that makes a lot of sense. So you were, so, so you taught him, so you were teaching him to teach you. Exactly. So that you could learn programming.
1: Exactly.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, you know, teaching him things like, hey, when you ask me a question, you need to sit quietly for at least seven seconds while I'm thinking of the answer. Because if, if I don't answer right away, it's because I'm trying to think about it. And it's re- it's way more important that I come up with the answer in my own brain than that the answer is said out loud. Like the world mm-hmm. doesn't actually need another... implementation of a hash table uh what the world needs is for me to be able to reason through it
0: so that makes a lot of sense
1: mm -hmm. but it's something that new teachers or new new people trying to explain things to other humans don't always uh don't always get right away
0: yeah that 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 makes a ton of sense so you were uh so you were doing excel and you were learning how to program i think that excel is actually a really common way for people to get into programming right Mm -hmm. uh I, I've definitely heard that story before. Uh, so you're doing, uh, you know, this Excel stuff at your job and you were, uh, you know, and you were learning to program by reading K&R on the bus and your husband teaching you some stuff and, you know, doing all of that. And then so so then what happened next?
1: Uh, so I actually put together a boggle game for on, on the command line because, you know, I was learning recursion and uh, boggle that that. If you're not in case someone's not familiar with it, it's that square of letters that you try to come up with all the words in. so i uh, I made that on the command line and then decided to make a website out of it, which took. I don't know, like a day and a half, because I'd been using C sharp and C plus plus, and after that, JavaScript, like things kind of fall together a lot more easily. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I I made a website that was that was honestly terrible. Uh, it I had a, a it, it was all front end, it was all client side, which meant that I had a sixty five thousand word dictionary that was it was just in memory. It was fine. <laughs> um, nice, but yeah, uh, but but I made that and then went to an interview. At a mobile agency that was looking for, I think they they wanted to call me a technical intern and maybe QA person for someone with zero experience as I had. Uh, and then at the end of the interview, I said like, "Oh, by the way, here's an example of my work. I made this website." And they were like, "Oh, you can code the web? We need mobile web developers." <laughs> I was like, "Okay, <laughs> I'll come in and learn." Uh, so uh, I I did. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, that I, so I got a chance to do some, uh, like memory, like writing animation libraries that could work on feature phones (laughs) Um, and and doing things like that. Yeah. Um, and it turned out that a lot of my friends at this mobile agency and my mentors were actually on the iOS side. And it seemed like they were having more fun. They got to do more stuff with data than than
0: I did on the feature phones.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, Like, they, yeah, that yeah, makes like sense. <laughs> it's. I mean, it's, iOS is still client side, but all those data structures and algorithms that I learned, I actually got a chance to. Um, I I actually got a chance to use a little now, bit more. Yeah.
0: Okay. So so and then you so you, you were working at this company and mm-hmm. then what what was the name of the company?
1: Uh, this was called Ubermind. They were cool. a scrappy mobile agency in Seattle that were like maybe sixty people when I joined, and they grew to I don't know one hundred and twenty. Oh wow! Um, yeah.
0: So you went from working on these feature phone things to working on the on the uh, iOS side. So how d- how did that happen?
1: Yeah. So uh, when I was at Ubermind, a lot of my friends and mentors were on the ios side and i kept hearing about this like you know we'd go on coffee walks and i'd hear about the sorts of problems that they were solving and the sorts of problems that they were solving seemed like they would take more advantage of the kinds of of programming skills that i was more interested in uh, of using uh, of using data uh, to do to to do different things uh, of of naming and algorithms because a lot of what my role was on the front-end web team was really animation polish. It was all on the UI level, and I was interested in doing more on more on the data side. So yeah, they had a project that had room for a junior developer to try to cut her teeth. So I joined a team over there and learned a bunch on that project. And that's the wonderful thing about mobile agencies, I think, especially for people who are trying to learn the ropes of a new tech area, is that you work on one project for a few months and then you say, okay, we figured out all the mistakes that we made there. Next time we're going to really get it right.
0: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> and and then you have a chance to try again and say, all right, let's try this networking pattern this time. And like, we kind of liked this way that we handled colors and themes and stuff, but let's try it this way now. And there's this optimism every time, which it and and chance to work with different people and different clients and different requirements so it's a uh, really i i think a nice way to build wisdom quickly because i think a challenge of working at one company over a long time that's important to learn to live with <laughs> to learn to live with your errors and and think about things in more of a future proofing way but it's also really possible for especially junior developers or anyone just starting out in their career, is to say, okay, well, this is the way we do it here. And therefore, this is the right way. It is the one true way that everybody should follow. So getting to jump kind of quickly from project to project knocks off some of those assumptions about oh, a, a successful project looks like X. Instead, it says, okay, well, here was a successful project that looked like X. Here was a failed project that looked an awful lot like X. And here's one that worked that really didn't have anything in common with either of those. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it helps to make people more pragmatic more quickly.
0: No, that 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 makes a ton of sense. I, uh, I think that I've definitely learned a lot from my jobs where I've been like working at a job and working on the same thing, but I for sure learned a ton from contracting just because like you said you get to jump around so much, you often get to work with a lot of different people um, you know so you get to touch a lot of things where like if you're just working on one app, right like you even if all the apps you are working on are kind of similar, like you said, like you get to try like a slightly different way to you know do networking or whatever every time
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, and even that's something that I have loved about the freelance work that I've been doing is the chance to even just see like, oh, here's how people handle uh, Git branching and here's how tasks get assigned. And, you know, before I maybe worked with this team, I would have had a different preference, but I see how this works and I see how it solves the problems that you have. And so, all right, I'm on board with that. Let's go.
0: That's good. Yeah. And I think being flexible is like a really good skill as a developer, right? Like absolutely. not being, yeah, like it's not, it's not fun to be, especially on a contracting kind of thing on a team with somebody where people are like super into the way that they do it and they have to do it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not flexible. It's, mm-hmm. I think that's a super important skill.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's It's easy to become dogmatic about things that have worked for you in the past.
0: Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Uh, So you're working at, so let's back up a little bit. You're working at UberMind and, uh, you know, getting into development, you know, getting into iOS development, doing all of that. And then this eventually led you to becoming the first iOS developer for Khan Academy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it was a really interesting time to join the company because they, uh, so if, in case anyone's not familiar with Khan Academy's work uh, they the it's a nonprofit company based in California and their goal is to provide a free world-class education for anyone anywhere and you know, it started with one person making math tutorial videos and putting them on YouTube and has just been expanding and expanding in terms of first lots of videos with lots of different content types and then people saying wait a minute if people are really going to learn math, they probably need to, need to practice math. So how can we make more interactive ways for people to understand, you know, tangent lines and things like that? Uh, so, and, and then moving even from, from there into, okay, well, this is basically just an interactive worksheet. How can we make it something that really, and I know their, their research team now is, is checking out ways to make it, uh, Make education really take advantage of this platform that's super interactive and not just say, "Hey, we took a textbook and threw it onto an iPad but but to make it uh, as as interactive and as educationally sound as possible mm-hmm. but when when I joined the company, it was it, it had exercises it had uh, it it had all the videos, but they were really a desktop focused company. And for me, coming from a mobile agency, you know, where to to see, you know, some of it it takes a real change of mindset to go from saying, "Hey, we made this desktop site, and our key interaction here is going to be that you hover over a thing, and then you're able to navigate into it," and saying, "Ah, this, okay, let's talk about touchscreens like Mm -hmm. that. That solves a problem that you've got, but." A lot of people are going to have a really hard time with it if they don't if they're not sitting there with the mouse. So uh, that was uh, kind of the the atmosphere that that I I joined on, and then over the next couple of years was able to work with leadership and work with other engineers uh, to really convince people that mobile is the way to provide education to. To anyone, anywhere, that mobile is really going to have to be an important piece of that, especially mm-hmm. as lots of kids don't have access to desktop computers. They'll have a phone, but they, they won't have a desktop computer.
0: No, that, that that makes a ton of sense. And so when you started there, mobile wasn't a thing they did full stop, right? Because you were the first iOS developer. Yeah, so- and they
1: weren't even sure that they would have enough to keep me busy full time, you know, it's looking at, at their team now and the awesome, super productive sorts of developers that they've hired. It's,
0: it's, a, it's a huge change. Yeah, that's that's kind of that's kind of funny. And I, I, I've I actually used Khan Academy. I think it's amazing.
1: Oh, awesome. Um, what did you learn with it?
0: Uh, you know, I think that I did a lot of math stuff. I thought it was, you know, because there's a lot of math you learn in school that like maybe you don't like get a chance to use so much like later on. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to like brush up on that and like make sure I wasn't too rusty and like a lot of like more basic things. And so I just I kind of started on like, you know, one of the more basic areas and just kind of took it all the way through. And oh, then nice. I was like, all right, well, I guess I do know some of that stuff. Um, <laughs> so, no, I, I love it. I, it's great. Uh, and it's it's just such a neat thing. So they're located in California. Were you remote when you were doing that? Yeah,
1: I was actually also their first full time remote person that they'd hired wow uh, who yeah they they 'd worked with folks who were on site and then moved away, but uh, they were really excited to work with me in particular because I had some of this mobile background and was a developer with formal training and education mm-hmm. which you know there there aren 't a lot of former former teachers who go on to become professional developers, so that made it a awesome match and made them willing to kind of take that risk of saying, all right, there's someone um, that is is far away, but we're going to figure out how to make it work. Uh, and yeah, so I've, I've actually been remote with ever, ever since I joined them, I've worked remotely. <laughs> so between them and, and my clients that I've worked with, it's mm-hmm. been 100% remote.
0: What do you... so? you did work on site when you were at Ubermind and then everything else has been remote.
1: Basically. uh (laughs) Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. What do you think of the difference? Do you like being remote or do you kind of miss going into an office and getting, do you feel like you're missing something being remote or do you feel like it's all when?
1: Uh, I definitely miss what I call the incidental sort of social contact that you have when you're just in a space with somebody because it's, you know, I, I know that there are some people who, uh, it doesn't take a lot of friction for them to reach out to people and establish social contact and say like, Hey, how was your weekend? Or, you know, how, um, you know, just, just, Hey, I'm, you know, here's the problem that I'm working through. I'm just kind of chatting through it over coffee. And some people, I, I've heard they exist (laughs) who can easily recreate this over iMessage and Slack and and all these different channels. Uh But for, for me, just that, little bit of social of, of friction that um, that comes from initiating a conversation remotely when you're not sure what someone exactly is up to and you might be interrupting and maybe you can just not have that small meaningless conversation I I will often err on the side of, of just staying quiet. And that's something I've had to really work on and and force myself to be more open and more proactive about reaching out to people and saying like, hey, I'm headed to lunch. And you know, just that kind of tiny reminders that flow back and forth between a team in person that remind each other like, oh yes, we're all human and we're all working on a thing together. I think it's really easy to lose those remotely. So I've had to push myself to get, to get better at it. And I really like that in person, you don't have to, I don't have to expend as much effort to, you know, have a 10 minute conversation with somebody about a problem. I can just say like, Hey, I'm going to coffee. Do you want to go? And then they'll go and we'll kind of naturally have a conversation about like, Oh, what, you know, nobody probably actually says this, but what do you think about the direction the company's headed? Like those, (laughs) those kind of conversations happen a lot more naturally. And it's, easier to keep your finger on the pulse that way
0: no absolutely i i do yeah i I do sometimes so so i guess where i'm working now is that i'm on a team but our team is really only me and one other person (laughs) (laughs) and they're not an ios developer so it's also sort of like i'm working alone Uh um yeah and i do kind of i i do oftentimes miss that you know like kind of chance for like peer mentorship you know where you can like just chat through stuff with people Absolutely. So we were talking about that, you know, you have this Khan Academy, right, was uh, really wanted to hire you because you had this, you know, you're a programmer, but you also had this background in teaching. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things I thought was interesting that we were talking about before the show was that, uh, you know, some of the teaching and stuff that you'd done was that you had traveled abroad and like lived in all these different countries and like taught English and like that kind of thing. Uh and we might be, be, you know, we're kind of backtracking a little bit, but I think it's really interesting. So I think you said you lived in Japan and Korea and France, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's part of, uh, I mean, it's similar to, I guess, with with a, a programming language. You can read the manual of a language and you can learn all the grammar and vocabulary by Studying, but the way that it really solidifies in your brain, and the way that you really get fluent, is by actually using it to get things done.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, that's why, like a lot of us as programmers, will have maybe a division between yes, I've I've written code in. Haskell or whatever, but I have written production code in these kinds of, of languages. Absolutely. And, and to me, going and spending time in a country like that's that's production <laughs> language ability. It's saying if if you can't figure out how to communicate with this server in a restaurant, you will have a bad time getting your food. <laughs> um, you might pay the wrong amount, things like that. So. Yeah, that's always been, you know, since I, I love learning languages, but the way to really level that up is, has been to go and spend time in the country. So I studied abroad in Japan for a summer and lived with a host family there. And then, what part
0: of, sorry, mm-hmm. oh, what part of Japan were you in?
1: I was in Hakodate. It is in North Japan. It's on the southern tip of, uh, of Hokkaido, the northernmost island, mm-hmm. um, they cool. have a an ika odori which if you put your palms together on either side uh just if you put your palms together above your head
0: I'm um, doing it right now
1: Yeah so you see how you kind of look like a squid
0: Uh-huh
1: Yeah so that's a, the squid dance so ika is is Japanese for squid so so you like there's a dance that you do with your hands above your head like that and that is the squid dance Perfect <laughs> Yeah <laughs> Um yeah, I, I spent some time there. I, I studied abroad in France in Nantes, and uh-huh. lived with a host family there as well. And then after university, wanted to uh, learn wanted to learn Korean, and found a program that it's. Uh, I I applied for a Fulbright grant to teach English in Korea, and the reason that I chose this to try to apply for a Fulbright was because it started off with six weeks of intensive language study and culture study. And because there's a lot of programs where, you know, people will say, hey, you're a native English speaker, go teach somewhere abroad. And they will just put you in the room with zero training and preparation mm-hmm. and just say, but you're a fluent English speaker. So clearly like what can go wrong? And you know, it goes back to what I was saying with with my husband in the KNRC book of like, just because someone has a skill does not mean that they're going to be at all good at transferring that skill to somebody else. Uh So it's something I really liked about the Fulbright program was they had this, was that it was important for them that we as foreign teachers in the country understood as much about the language and culture as we could. I mean, six weeks is not enough time to get really good at it, but it's way more than a lot of other programs got. Um, so I had that, and then got to live with another host family uh, in truly the middle of nowhere. It's a town that like Korean people haven't heard of. In a, oh, wow. ti- <laughs> in a tiny elementary school, we had forty two kids in the whole school, K through six. Um, and yeah, that was a, a really good chance to practice Korean because a lot of people uh, did did not speak English.
0: That sounds amazing.
1: Ah, uh, sometimes, yeah. It's <laughs> I mean, to, to spend a, a year, it's it's intense. Always, always being an outsider and always speaking in a language that you're not really fluent in. I mm-hmm. think it's easy to forget that sometimes you're someone who can follow a conversation and interject a joke. (laughs) Like that's, that's Uh an advanced skill. And, you know, to go like a month without being able to, to make jokes other than, you know, slapstick basic (laughs) level stuff is, uh, it, it can get to you sometimes, but it was, yeah, it was absolutely fascinating getting to live, uh, in, a place that was more traditional in some ways, you know you 'd walk down the road and it would be a basically one and a half lane road where sometimes half of the lane going between these fields was covered up with a tarp that had just red peppers drying out into the sun mm-hmm. and that that was just how people did things and you know it 's a super modern country like they they 've had uh, really high speed internet around the whole country, like even back this was two thousand and six. And I was in the middle of nowhere and we had super fast internet (laughs) in our house. Um, So it was, you know, that it's a really, you know, in in a lot of ways, more uh, tech advanced than the U.S. was, especially then. Mm -hmm. Uh, But getting to see some of that, but also these more traditional uh, ways of getting things done was pretty cool
0: that is that that is super cool and i bet you got a lot better at korean in a year
1: oh yeah yeah i was able uh, this is you know just i'm just going to brag like i could read charlotte's <laughs> web by the end of it which which made me really happy nice. and if i may plug for anyone who's ever been interested in languages uh the korean alphabet is amazing it is phonetic which a lot of people don't realize um but it's, it's a phonetic alphabet that was actually designed in, I think, the 600s or so to match the language. So, you know, a lot of languages, like English has both K and C, and it's like, yeah, you sometimes use one for one and the other for the other. And now Korean is really well designed in this sort of one-to-one mapping that the letters are easy to learn. They make sense. All the vowels kind of look like vowels and consonants kind of look like consonants. And mm-hmm. on the keyboards, they're they're divided. There's like the vowels over here and the consonants over there. And it's it, really, you can learn it in about two hours, maybe three, and then you'll be able to just pronounce things written in Korean. You might not know what you're saying, but you'll be able mm-hmm. to pronounce things. It's really fun.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um. So, uh, so, so, you know, so you speak all these languages, which is super cool, by the way, but you speak all these languages and, you know, you're teaching and doing all that. How, how do you feel, what do you feel like the relationship between, you know, we have like, I guess what we call like natural languages, right. Is what we call like human language, mm-hmm. uh, and like programming languages. Like, do you feel like there's a relationship there or is it like pretty different? Like, like, did that help you? Do you think, or do you feel like it's like a really different, like way of thinking?
1: It programming definitely relies more on logic and grouping than learning a natural language does but for example i was i had an easier time understanding functions and the way that you would pass information into a function versus calling a method on an object a little bit because first going going from english to learning Japanese, you really have to break up the way that you think of a sentence. Because mm-hmm. um, we, as, as native English speakers, we don't have to think really hard about the structure. But then going to something like Japanese, where instead of the English construction would be, I go to the store. And in Japanese, you might say, store to, I go. Or as for me, store to, go. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And... Breaking up English sentences into their structural parts and and thinking about semantics that way and saying well this is the role of this verb uh, helped me go into looking at programming functions and saying oh okay this is the role of this one uh, uh, of this of this function name or of this parameter and and to be able to not be so surprised that when you write something in programming it doesn't look at all like english it's like oh yeah sometimes things have meaning and they don't look at all like english and i was a lot more comfortable with that
0: that but, makes a lot of sense
1: yeah <laughs> but the thing is like in with natural languages you can get by with a lot of hand waving in a lot of ways you know you
0: mm-hmm.
1: can learn uh like uh, is it Randall Monroe with the XKCD author with the, the 10 yes. hundred most common words. You can really get by with a lot and, and combining things, but unless you add words to the language, it's hard to abstract them into other groups. Whereas with programming, you can say, Oh, these four concepts are related. I'm going to come up with a new word that I'm going to use to name all of those four concepts. And now everybody can just use this new word. Uh, everywhere that they need it so there's uh and and that's at the level of the the programmer using the language is you know adding adding words that other developers on the project will be able to use to get things done and that's not mm-hmm. something that happens in in natural language as as frequently
0: that makes sense but what you were saying about in uh you know you can do more hand waving with natural language i think is what you were saying right mm kind of? Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of, the way I was thinking about it when you're saying, tell me if this makes sense, is that with a, um, the natural language, like maybe if you aren't like super fluent, but you can like, like people who are fluent can still, you can still communicate with them. Like maybe you wouldn't say it in the ideal way, but they can still sort of make sense of what you were going to say. Right. Where like with programming, you actually have to be like very specific. You can't, (laughs) Like you can't like not say it the right, like you can't, you can't not know, you can't, you know, leave out a, uh, you know, parentheses or something. And like the compiler knows what that means, right? They can't make sense of that.
1: It's true. And the compilers sometimes try to help you and say, it looks like you're trying to say this, but until you actually go in and type that character, I'm not going to like, I cannot move on. Like you, (laughs) you have to say it first.
0: Yeah that 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 makes that that makes all the sense in the world. Um so uh you know so you've transitioned to freelancing and do, mm-hmm. doing that whole thing. Uh what is what what has that been like? What's the transition from you know working at a full-time company and doing that whole thing to freelancing? What's that been like?
1: It's it's been fascinating. It's similarly to like we were saying earlier, it's a bit like working at an agency and that you get to work with different teams on different projects and see different people's priorities. And uh, something that I've really enjoyed has been the chance to look at different industries and, uh, it, and, and writing software that supports, you know, learning or that supports business communication or that supports finance. It's just it's awesome go getting to go in and seeing people, especially if it's a company that has folks who've been working there for a while. They live and breathe this stuff. they get really excited about construction and, uh-huh. and they know all the problems that their users face and as an outsider, you're just like wow i didn't I didn't even know that that was a problem that needed to get solved and it's it's a privilege to be able to come in and write software that will help solve someone's problems in a field that that I'm not familiar with. I mean that's not something that I would undertake on my own to say like, "Oh, I you know, I don't know anything about this field. Let me just waltz in and write some software for you." But <laughs> be like that's that's the way a lot of people run into all kinds of problems. But to be you know, an additional team member with folks who do understand the field really well and and are trying to to solve a problem with all their domain knowledge, it's uh it's something i've really enjoyed
0: yeah i i love that about uh that that is definitely one of the things that i loved about doing contracting was uh you know not just the what we were talking about earlier we're getting to work on like different kinds of code things but just the idea about like yeah you get to work with like all kinds of weird things you never would have like thought of right like i did one where um you know, like I did one where I was working with a company which made like uh like scopes, like electronic scopes, right? For mm. um you know, for like measuring electrically things, you know, uh, shows how much I know. But um <laughs> but they wanted to like stream that to an iPad and they were like a big you know, normally if you're you know, you or I, you cannot um, you know, like getting into the like made for iPhone program or whatever is not like a thing you can do, right? But they were a big company, so they could. So I got to like Make a thing to connect their scope to an iPad and like work with the mFI program and like you know like things that I never would have gotten to do that. I never would have known about that industry. Uh, I never would have gotten to do the mFI stuff right like none of that would have been a thing if it was just me.
1: oh, that's awesome,
0: yeah um, okay, so uh so we talked about all that, and so something else I want to ask you about was before uh the show, we were talking about uh you said one of the things that's been really interesting to you lately is the idea of writing readable code and like what that means. And like, maybe you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, ties into a couple of things we were talking about. That is a a talk that I wrote uh, a couple of years ago, because I was struggling with a code base that I, I found pretty unreasonable, or sorry, I, I found pretty un, unreadable in some ways. And I was really wondering like is it just me is this a problem that I have and <clears throat> trying to answer that question of when is it reasonable for one per- for one developer to go to their to go to another developer and say hey I'm having trouble understanding this code and that means that it should be written in a different way uh because I, I think a lot of us as developers, we start thinking, well, if somebody wrote it, I should be able to understand it. And if I can't understand it, that, that's on me. Like I I need to up my game. I need to learn more about the language. I need to just try harder uh-huh. and then I'll be able to read it. But something that I hit on is that that is not the same as reading, that I actually call that deciphering, that we can figure it out if we expend all this energy and and sit and go back and forth and look up the docs and look at the implementation and start sketching out everything that's happening, we, we can figure it out. But to me, that's not just reading. That's, that's not letting your, that's not letting your eyes scan across the page and developing an intuitive sense of what's happening.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so something that I've been pushing for is you know, not 100% of things have to be readable all the time because that's really hard to do. <laughs> you know, it's I I think we've all had the experience, out, let's say, out, outside of programming. You know, if you're writing an important email and it, you know that the person isn't going to read it very carefully and you really want to make sure that they get all of your points, it takes you a long time to write it. In a way that a busy person will be able to skim it and get your most important information out of it 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 takes a lot of effort, and so we don't write all of our emails like that <laughs> at least i you know i uh, i I'm not able to, and so sometimes you spend a lot of effort trying to make it something that people can just skim and pick up quickly, and sometimes you say, "You know what i'm going to ask you to just work a little harder to figure out what it is that I am saying because i don't have time to." tighten this and bold all the salient phrases and Mm -hmm. collect all my questions at the end and and all that stuff. Um,
0: That reminds me of the quote where it's, if I, I, uh, where it's, uh, the the quote where it's like, you know, the guy, I'm trying, I can't remember, you probably will know what this is, but it's where, you know, it's PS at the end of the letter. If I had more time, I would have made this shorter.
1: Yeah. It's, um, someone told me I I have been talking about that quote also. <laughs> someone said it was it was Pascal, but um but someone else it's also attributed to Hemingway. Um I was in France when the person was like, "Oh no, it's definitely Pascal." Like, "Okay." <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm sorry for the long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's so true and and so uh, I guess where I come down is that it's not I'm not trying to say everybody must write things that everyone can understand quickly all the time, but to say at least notice when you're writing something that's easy to understand and notice when you're not and make that a conscious choice instead of just saying, well, I wrote it so you should be able to figure it out.
0: Hmm. No, that, that makes sense. Uh, and so you've been, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, And so then you've also were telling me you've been doing these conference talks. You've been Mm -hmm. speaking a lot. It seems like, um, and, uh, you know, how does, how do you feel like your education background, right. Relates to giving a talk to a room full of people, like what's the difference there versus what's the similarities and how do you think that, you know, how do you think that's helped you? And, uh, you know, what do you think the surprising differences have been?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great question. Uh, one of one of the similarities that surprised me actually is that after my first couple of talks, people would come up to me and say, "Wow, Laura, you have so much energy! Like it's it's really just, you know, it, enjoyable to like be in the room while you're explaining a thing." And I'm there thinking, I used to teach second graders, and if you are not literally the most interest if if you're not the most interesting thing by far in the room mm-hmm. i've had second graders start throwing shoes at each other i had people literally climbing the bookshelves over in the corner like you have to keep people's attention or there will be there will be chaos uh-huh. um, so that was um a thing that I just assumed, like, of of course you have to make yourself the most interesting thing in the room. I don't expect grown-up developers to start throwing shoes at each other. But, and you probably had this experience too, singing in a band. It You have to project a lot of energy because there's always something more interesting for people to pay attention to. And so that that's kind of a, a base level of... Uh, of trying to lead a group of people and learning something is, all right, I got to put out as, as much energy as I possibly can to keep people engaged, especially oh, for an hour. My gosh.
0: Yeah. I. Speaking of that, what you're feeling on... So I have always felt like a lot of times when you do these uh, conference talks, they'll have you up there for like 70 minutes or something, right? <sighs> I often, I feel like that's too long. I, yeah. I, think, I think many conferences <laughs> would be better if they made it like 30 to 40 minutes. I feel Mm -hmm. like I can talk about almost anything for 30 to 40 minutes and make Mm -hmm. it interesting. And I think it's almost impossible to make anything interesting for over an hour.
1: Absolutely. You would have to be so pro and do those things where you divide it up and you're like, okay, well, here's gonna be four minutes of video. And here's like this other, you would have to really uh, modulate your levels in an extremely planned way, or be the most charismatic person who's ever been born. You know, like if, but even in that case, like stand-up comedians keep your attention for a long time, but they practice the heck out of that material. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I know that uh, I had at tries. Uh, I I got to speak at Tri Swift Japan a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and those they those talks were I think twenty-two minutes.
0: That seems perfect to me. And,
1: oh my gosh, because yeah, and I, I had a talk that I'd get, I actually um, gave a version of my talk about readable code there. And I had a version that was 40 minutes. It was like, how am I going to cut this down to 22 minutes? Well, it turns out you do that by cutting everything that is not your very, very best content. And then it's a much better talk because if you cut out the, you know, the bottom 40% of your content, then you're left with really only the good stuff. And it's painful to cut. It's so painful to say like, but I love this section, but it's not one of the 12 best sections. So I'm just not going to take people's time with it right now.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, my, my feeling on that is just that it's like, I'm not going to, I'm not doing a even no matter what the conference talk is, right, I'm probably not actually like teaching the people the thing. It's not like they're going to leave my core graphics talk and then be able to go write core graphics code immediately after. I'm just turning them on to like the ideas and like generally how things work, I feel like. And I, I think I could do that for almost any topic in about 20 minutes. And, That's a really and good at, point. Yeah. That's um, mm-hmm.
1: something that uh, I've... Actually, just gave a workshop a couple of weeks ago during during WWDC at CocoConf next door. That was explicitly saying to people, "Okay, if if you're going to give a talk, first of all, decide how important is it to you that people walk out of the room with a new skill, uh, versus how important is it to you that you inspire some feeling. Like, are you talking about security and you just want people to be afraid every time they touch security, or are you, you know, you're." Or are you trying to provide some documentation where you just want them to know that this stuff exists and when they need it later, they'll come back to your talk and look at it. And so asking people to explicitly make, first make those choices and then based on that say, okay, what are, you know, if let's say you do want people to walk out of the room able to do a thing that they couldn't do before, what practice materials are you going to give them so that they can practice the thing in maybe even in the middle of your talk, it would have to to change the format a bit. But like I know Liz Marley is giving a talk about uh, um, affine transforms and has everybody download a, a multi-page playground ahead of time so they can go along and actually try the things as they do it. And so that's definitely a talk that people will walk out of with a skill that they didn't have before. But yeah, a lot of times like it's it's absolutely appropriate for some conference talks to just say, "Hey, we're going to inspire you that the thing exists and give you something to think about over lunch."
0: Yeah, and I, you know what? I had never th- that that idea of using the uh the playground. That's that's a that's a really smart idea if you're the kind right? of person. Yeah, that's that's really smart. I'm super impressed that somebody uh that she thought of that. Uh-huh. Uh Because yeah, I feel like for me, it's more about like I'm going to be the most high energy thing in this room and get really (laughs) jazzed up about unit testing or whatever. Yeah. And like and like hearts and minds. Yeah, that's I'm gonna like take you on a hero's journey through you know uh, you know choreographics or you know GCD or whatever, Uh, and then you can go into the special world and you know uh, be Luke Skywalker after that. Um, and. But but doing doing that playground thing now I kind of want to try that because that sounds like a genius idea,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, Liz is awesome.
0: Yeah. Um. So, last thing I have that I want to ask you about is uh localization, right? Because you you have kind of a unique thing, and that most people, I feel like most people don't localize their apps. Uh, number one, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I feel like most people don't localize their apps. Uh, and if they do, right, it's like something you're. I feel like that's a very difficult thing for people to, maybe not, I don't, I don't know. It's a hard thing for people to think about, at least, uh, it, you have the experience of that maybe you can do some of that localization yourself and you can understand things in a way that other developers might not. So what what are your feelings about localization and, you know, doing that on iOS?
1: Uh, it's, uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It's really near and dear to my heart because languages are so interesting, and uh, you know you you see some of the challenges that people have when it's like, hey, this app is brilliant and solves a problem, and it's not available in the language that you speak. So either learn English or don't get your problem solved by the app, and that's really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I, I wanna, I think the superpower that having studied so many languages gives me is a really healthy fear of ever assuming that, that language is predictable. Um, like just, you know, for a small example, lots of people, uh, like we, as developers, we really like to be as efficient as possible. And so if we have a sentence that just one word changes depending on context, um, you know, like uh, an example that I give is if you're trying to give someone a compliment on their clothing every day and you say like, hey, nice shoes or a nice shirt or a nice pants or a nice whatever, um, we would write a function that you would pass in the object of clothing and then it would prepend nice and then we would just kind of go on our way. But in so many different languages, the word nice is going to change depending on the whether, um, on whether the noun is singular or plural. And it's going to change whether the noun is masculine or feminine and masculine and feminine nouns in French are not the same as masculine and feminine nouns in Hindi, which, which also has gendered nouns. Um, even things like, like pluralization in, we all have written the code that's like, yeah, if you have you know, if you're saying hello, children, or maybe there's sometimes only one, and you say, "Okay, if there's only one, it'll be hello, child," and if it's not one, then it'll be children, and and we're done. And so we've all written that if-else statement,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but there are other languages, like uh, I think I think Croatian is one of them, where the ending of the noun is different if the quantity. Ends in a two or a four, so like twelve to fourteen or twenty-two to twenty-four, will be one ending. Versus if it's e- evenly divisible by ten, it'll be something else. That one I don't think is Croatian. I'm just making that up as an example. I think Hebrew <laughs> Hebrew may have that, but just the all the different different ways that things can radically change from language to language, and what I've found, I found because I. I get <laughs> I get really passionate about the, this stuff and I talk to lots of developers and developers really have this sense that they'll be able to figure it out or like oh no like that that'll be fine that won't be too hard it's like but you are making all these assumptions that you don't even know you don't even know how wrong you're gonna be you know you have the word now in English that's in a circle and the font exactly fills the circle and it looks great because it's it's approximately a square. And then you change it into French and the word is maintenant, which has like 12 letters or something, and it's going to look terrible. Um, so I, I think that the the way that my language background has really helped me has been in being very suspicious of all user-facing text and saying, what what are the ways that this uh that that another language might not interface well with this at all
0: mhm man i thought i was on top of things because i always use ns localized string for user facing text yeah. i thought i no. thought i was on top of things <gasps> and now you tell me this i'm like there's so much i wasn't even thinking of
1: No, it's it's true for everybody and i that's exactly the the reaction that i have with lo- from lots of folks is like no we're we're ready we did the ns localized string it's like yeah but it's still, it, it it might probably, and it's it's unfortunate, but I would guess that a lot of folks who speak languages um, that have, for example, these complicated plural rules, they're probably used to seeing badly translated apps, and it probably doesn't interfere with the meaning. Um, it's just not going to look super professional. So if mm-hmm. if you want things to sound fluent, like they were actually made for you, then then yeah, it's, uh, it's critical to have a native speaker (laughs) to actually look at your things and say, nope, this is, this is where your assumptions have failed you.
0: No, that, that, that makes a ton of sense. And actually I can think of, it's not a, it's, it's not an app, but, uh, I, I was in Japan uh, a couple months ago. And, um, one of the things that I uh, noticed there is a lot of the like products and things that they have on the shelves, which are like clearly like, you know, for Japan, made in Japan, uh, We'll get just like the structure of things will be all weird, right? Mm-hmm. Or they'll get like plurals, you know, plurals actually specifically where they will be like, you know, four man's, four mm-hmm. women's, mm-hmm. right? Like stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um so I can, you know, I can totally see it from the air side where you're saying like, yeah, like you can probably like make sense of it, but it's 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 not great.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And that's where you know some people will say, like, oh Laura, you speak French. Like, would you want to translate this app into French. And I say, no, like I, I'm pretty fluent, but I'm going to make hilarious language mistakes. And, you know, that's, um, one of, it's, it's kind of awkward to think about, but the, the sorts of language mistakes that are really easy to fall into and then go viral are because, I think pretty much every language has a lot of phrases that are unexpected euphemisms for uh, scatological things and for (laughs) sex.
0: Amazing. Um, Yes.
1: And so if you make a mistake that where you like directly translate something word for word and, and then just put it into this other language, the odds that it's going to be a euphemism for something that people will crack up at and want to share everywhere is a lot higher than the odds that it just doesn't make sense.
0: That's actually, (laughs) that's incredible. Um, people really are all the same. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. so, so that, that all, you know, that, that, that all makes a ton of sense about not making assumptions, uh, you know, when you're writing your code about, you know, and i when you say that, I can think of 17 different ways I've done this, right? Mm -hmm. Of making assumptions about like the way something will be formatted and then putting in an S localized string and then not realizing that, oh yeah, if like the word order changed or whatever, like this just, this won't work at all. Mm -hmm. Um, so what would you, what would your, do you have any like concrete tips, like, like just like a couple like concrete tips for how to avoid that? Like, how to not make those assumptions. Because if you're not somebody like you who speaks a lot of languages and stuff, like, I maybe wouldn't even realize that that is a thing I'm doing until somebody like you tells me. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I send it to be localized and they tell me. So how would you, uh, what are some concrete tips on avoiding that?
1: I would say, first, be uh, incredibly skeptical of any string interpolation. First of all, it is kind of busted in Swift anyway. Uh, to just stick a variable inside the, the slash with the parentheses you 're going to need to use an n s localized format string i think um so but anytime you 're doing that really if the grammar of your sentence would be broken if you just um swapped the orders around completely, then break things up basically the 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 short the short tip is break things up. Uh, into the, use the longest strings that you possibly can. Don't get fancy with interpolated strings. Also, because all of those static tools that pull out all of your, that pull out your, your keys at, Uh you know, they will fail if you're expecting things to be found at runtime because the static tool does not compile your app. (laughs) So, you know, if, if you're doing if you're constructing keys at runtime and then expect the static tool to automatically pull them out and give them to a nice, in a nice file for your translators, you're going to be really disappointed when that totally fails. Um, so yeah, keep, keep long, keep strings as long as you possibly can, even though there's going to be lots of repetition.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, actually use comments because uh, unless you have a, a, Fancy third-party tool that shows people's work in context. Yeah, like things like the word post in in English. If you say like write a post versus the button that says post and it's a verb, that happens to be the same word in English. It's not the same in every language. Like <laughs> so The, the, oh, that the verb sense. and noun are, are just not going to be the same. So mm-hmm. using a comment to describe what that value is for... Uh, will will help you make sure that you're not secretly using the same English uh, English word for multiple purposes.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, now that yeah. those all seem like those all seem like fantastic tips. So, uh, well, that that's all I had to ask you today. Do you have any uh, do you have any final thoughts?
1: Uh, I nope.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, so thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. And maybe say how people can find you, you know, find out about your work and find you on Twitter and that sort of thing.
1: Oh, yeah. So uh, I'm on on Twitter and on the web as Savino La. Uh, it's uh, S-A-V like Victor, I-N like November, O-L-A, and that's uh, dot .com. And I finally made a website. It has all my talks in one place. So those, those are, are at SavinoLa.com. And that's also where I am on Twitter.
0: Fantastic. And uh, if you'd like to follow uh, me on Twitter, I'm at Colin Donnell with uh, the way I was told is you double all the optional letters. So it's C-O-L-L-I-N-D-O-N-N-E-L-L, which I thought was a funny way to spell. To, to, it's a funny programmer way to think about how to spell my name. <laughs> uh, if you'd like to follow uh, the run loop, uh, it's at the run loop. I'm going to try and post... Uh, more things there than just when a new episode comes out, so there'll be a reason to fi- a reason to follow it. Uh, and if you would like to support the show on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com/slash Colin Donnell. Uh, Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show, and have a great rest of your day.
1: Thanks. This was super fun.
0: Okay. Thank you.